Our scripture reading this evening is Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. Our lesson from the Belgic Confession this evening is in many ways very simple. It's simply the affirmation of the deity of Christ, that our Lord Jesus Christ is fully God. One of the things I hope both to challenge us with and encourage us with this evening is what can often seem like the strangeness of how the New Testament communicates this, the way in which the New Testament reveals to us the deity of Christ. And one of those places that can be part of a long list of how the New Testament does this is this account, Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the opportunity we have to gather together around your word. We thank you for the rich tradition we have, or the treasure we have in the Reformed tradition of being able to learn together with those who have come before us. We pray that you would use this tool of the Belgic Confession to direct us to your word and to our Lord Jesus Christ, to the promises and the life you have called us to in him. And we pray that this would be fruitful in our midst because of the presence and work of your Holy Spirit. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our lesson from the Belgic Confession this evening is Article 10. We will read these words aloud together. Remember that this structure of what we are doing reminds us of the role, the place of the Belgic Confession. At least two ways you can look at it. God has spoken in his word. The confession is helping by summarizing, explaining that word. We can also say God has spoken in his word and this is our confession of faith in response to God's word. That in particular is expressed as we recite these words together. Article 10 of the Belgic Confession. Let us say together, We believe that Jesus Christ, according to his divine nature, is the only Son of God 
eternally begotten, not made nor created, for then he would be a creature. He is one in essence with the Father, co-eternal, the exact image of the person of the Father and the reflection of his glory, being in all things like him. He is the Son of God, not only from the time he assumed our nature, but from all eternity, as the following testimonies teach us when they are taken together. Moses says that God created the world, and John says that all things were created by the Word, which he calls God. The letter to the Hebrews says that God made the world by his Son. Paul says that God created all things by Jesus Christ. And so it must follow that he who is called God, the Word, the Son, and Jesus Christ already existed when all things were created by him. Therefore, the prophet Micah says that his origin is from ancient times, from eternity. And Hebrews says that he has neither beginning of days nor end of life. So then, he is the true eternal God, the Almighty, whom we invoke, worship, and serve. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is my intention as of this evening to begin a slightly different rhythm with how I introduce the outlines, and that is to have the first thing I say simply be the first line you have here in the introduction section. So from the very beginning, you will have a blank to fill in. So, to the introduction. We learn from the Belgic Confession that it not only matters what we believe, but also how and why we believe it. In many ways, what the Belgic Confession has for us here in Article 10, much of its interestingness is embedded in this. Not just what we confess, that Jesus Christ is fully God, but also the way in which the Belgic Confession describes this. There is, for example, an emphasis on our Catholicity. The Belgic Confession goes to great lengths to say things the way Christians have always said them. To speak of the divinity of Christ, to speak of the scriptural case for the divinity of Christ in a way that echoes and draws forward the ancient creeds of the church and the way that theologians long before the time of the Reformation described these things. Now, I'm not going to show you all the instances of that. I'm going to show you one where it's the language of the Nicene Creed. The point is not so much the specifics, but that that matters to us. That we are not just doing some very small, narrow, reformed thing, but that our being a reformed church is how we are connected with the broader Christian church. It is our way of being Christian. And that, that broader, that bigger Christianness is the main thing that the Belgic Confession is constantly pointing us to. Now that is true, I, I hope and I think it's obvious to us, that is true regarding confessing that Christ is divine. But it's also true in the specific language the confession uses. There's another way the confession says something about how and why we believe this, and that is the way the confession points to the scriptures. There is sometimes a bit of a strangeness to how the scriptures teach the deity of Christ. And it is a strangeness 
that I think, if we're honest, sometimes frustrates us. Especially if you have encountered debates with those of cults, for example, who want to claim Christian-y things but deny things like the Trinity or the deity of Christ. And you're turning to Scripture to make the case against them and you're like, man, couldn't the Bible have just said this more explicitly a few more times, you know? It would make this all a little bit easier. Well, what I hope to show us in a very, very um, hopefully simple outlined form is that there's a reason the Scriptures speak in that way and that there is a richness and a goodness to it, and that the Belgic Confession, in choosing the texts it uses, especially combining Old and New Testament, is making the case for this. There is something the Bible does, something that God's Word does, that it can only do because of the way in which it teaches us these things. That's for the Trinity in general, and it's for the deity of Christ in particular. All right, well, what on earth does that mean? Number two to your outline, the central event. The New Testament's teaching regarding the deity of Christ is in response to the event of the incarnation and resurrection. Part, I'll give you letter A here in a moment before I do. Part of what's happening in the New Testament, in those moments where you think, man, why don't the apostles just say this a bit more clearly so that I can win my debates with the cults more easily? Part of what is happening is that the apostles are saying what they are saying because an event has happened. And they are, they are wrestling with, they are dealing with, how does this event that has happened and what it says about Jesus fit with what we confess in the Old Testament? Now, which for them, they would just be the scriptures, about the oneness of God and that God is one. There is an event that happened that forced them to deal with this. Letter A. The resurrection vindicated all that Jesus said and did as the Messiah and therefore as the Son of God. When we complain about the apostles, for example, not teaching more clearly the divinity of Christ, or more pointedly or more repeatedly, really the strangeness of it presses back into the ministry of Christ. Why didn't he say it more often? Why didn't he say it more clearly? And there's even places, many of you know, you know the stories, there's many places where Jesus actually tells people, including his disciples for a certain period of time, not to tell people that he is the Christ, not to tell people that he is the Messiah. Why? Well, one of the reasons is that the truth of all of it and the reality of all, it, all of it would not be clear. It would not be vindicated until the resurrection. It is the resurrection of Christ from the dead, that public event in history, that then made the apostles go back and say, everything Jesus said and did must have been true because he rose again from the dead. God announces that about him by the resurrection. And they discover in all of that the vindication of him being the Messiah and that the Messiah had to be and do what only God could be and do for Israel. Romans 1 verses 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul speaking of the gospel concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. If someone went around in Israel at the time of Christ saying, Hey everybody, I'm God. No one would listen to him. And they shouldn't because Israel knows God is one. All right, You're a person. 
if someone went around Israel saying, I'm the Messiah, and then they were crucified, no one would go around saying, hey, he died for our sins. What they would know is he failed. If someone in ancient Israel claimed to be the Messiah, claimed to be divine, and then died on the cross, that was a failed Messiah. And no one would say, no one would want to say, no one would think to say that he died for their sins. Why then did they say that he was the Messiah? Why did they say that he was the very presence of God having returned to Israel? Because the event of the resurrection was something they could not deny. It was public with many witnesses, and it vindicated all that Jesus had said and done. And that event of the resurrection compelled them then to figure out what is going on. And as they poured over the Old Testament scriptures in response to the event of the resurrection, you discover all throughout themes by which the Messiah would be and do for Israel what only God could be and do for Israel. This is also the case for how we look at the the ministry of Christ. Let her be. The resurrection of Christ illuminates and vindicates the ways in which his divine nature was signaled throughout his ministry by way of divine claims and divine prerogatives. Consider, for example, Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. So there were places where he said things where it was pretty clear He was revealing that as the Messiah, he was the one in which the God of Israel had returned to Israel as he had promised. There are places where it's pretty clear that Jesus does things, he says things that only God could say and do. And as the account we just read from Mark chapter 2 makes clear, there were those who sensed that. They could tell this is what Jesus was saying and doing. Before we look at that example, uh, another one in addition to what we just read is John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verses 56 through 59. Jesus says this, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. By the way, I have to pause because that's sort of fun because we're doing Abraham in the morning. Notice how Jesus says Abraham saw his day. So Jesus is part of that testimony that Abraham, his faith was directed toward what God would do in Christ. Verse 57, so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And here he uses, with the I am statements, he uses that language of God, the name of God, I am, Yahweh, Jehovah. And the Israelites recognized this. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Likewise, in our scripture reading from Mark chapter 2, when Jesus proclaims to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, those around him recognize that he was claiming a divine prerogative. He was claiming to do something that only God can do. And so they question this. Now he shows his divinity even more. He senses what they are questioning in their hearts. And so he says to them, uh, verse Eight, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And the paralytic is healed. 
And we're told they are glorifying God, saying, we never saw anything like this. They knew that you were supposed to reject someone who went around saying, I'm God. But then he does miracles. And you're like, okay, something's going on here. And the only reason they would even begin to take him seriously is the reality of those miracles. But if he had simply died on the cross, defeated by the Romans, he still would have been a failed Messiah. And they still would have looked back on what he said and what he did and said, I don't know, it must have been demonic somehow. It must have been a trick. You certainly would not go around preaching this guy. And you certainly would not be willing to die for who he was and what he did. So what is it that vindicated all of this? It was the resurrection from the dead. Christ's resurrection, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, proclaimed him to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. It was by the event of the resurrection that he was vindicated as the Messiah. Now, that basic idea is part of the strangeness of how the New Testament speaks of all of this. Good Jewish believers knew God is one. The resurrection proclaimed in a way they could not deny something about the deity of Christ. Now the doctrine of the Trinity, we have to fit all of that together. Number three on your outline, when they are taken together. The Belgic Confession emphasizes the unity of Scripture regarding the deity of Christ. So first, in summary statement, letter A, what is it? that we're confessing in this doctrine, we confess that Christ, according to his divine nature, is the only Son of God, equally begotten, not made nor created, and is one in essence with the Father. And here I simply wanted to point out that echoing the language of the Nicene Creed of one substance with the Father. This is not saying that Jesus is a God. It's saying that he just is the presence of the one God of Israel. That he just is the one God of Israel, God with us, returned to Israel as he had promised through the prophets. This is letter B. This is proclaimed clearly in the New Testament. So despite the strangeness of all of it, it is nevertheless stated clearly. And uh, the... Belgic Confession speaks in particular of the witness of John chapter 1. Let's go ahead and turn there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John speaks of this word as being God, and yet in a sense being distinguishable from God. This sort of thing is said repeatedly in the New Testament. Colossians 1 about the Christ being the fullness of the presence of God. This sort of thing is said clearly, but said in a way that is meant to be signaling it being anticipated by the Old Testament. And so fitting within what is said in the Old Testament scriptures. Letter B, proclaim clearly in the New Testament. Letter C, in a way that is anticipated by the Old Testament. So in Genesis 1, God creates through his word. Not in places like Proverbs 8, not just there, but also elsewhere, the word and wisdom of God is spoken of as being God, but also in a sense being distinguishable from God, all within the confession that God is one. It is those sorts of things that is constraining John, for example, to say what he says in John chapter 1 about the deity of Christ. And it is that desire to fit the reality that Christ is divine 
within the affirmation that God is one in response to the event, the public event of the resurrection that then leads to the strangeness of how the New Testament speaks of these things. So, to continue with the question we began with, why doesn't the New Testament say this more straightforwardly? It's because the thing that is being said is richer than simply Jesus is God. That could lead on its own to all sorts of errors of its own. The thing that is being said is that God is one. That all that the Old Testament scriptures say about God is fully true. That God is one. And that in Christ, that one God of Israel has come to Israel, visited Israel, is present with Israel. And that it is the event of the resurrection that then vindicates and compels God's people to confess that truth. In other words, the strangeness of it is part of how it is rooted in history. That the New Testament is not just abstract doctrines being taught. The way we might think of the Belgic Confession being, or a catechism being. That the New Testament is proclaiming real events. And it's proclaiming those events in a way that has the power to compellingly testify to the reality of the events at every point in history. And one of the ways it does that so beautifully is in the strangeness of the confession. All of the scriptures say about who Christ is, is in response to proclaiming, explaining the event of Christ's presence in Israel. There is one more thing we need to note about the wisdom of how the Belgic Confession talks about this. There's the emphasis on Catholicity. There's what we've been spending all this time on, that it's rooted in an event. The resurrection of Christ makes all of this clear. And there's also the way the Confession speaks of this being our experience. Number four, He is the true eternal God. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, And this matters for all of faith and life. And here I'm simply unfolding the last sentence of of this article. So then, he is the true eternal God, the Almighty, whom we invoke, worship, and serve. Part of how the New Testament, part of how the early church spoke of Christ was a result of this as well. It was the experience of who he is and what he did. And it was the experience then of worshiping God in Christ that is then part of what is being expressed in this doctrine. And our confession uses three words for this. First, invoke, meaning to call upon. It has in view the idea of prayer. While the scriptures emphasize that we pray to the Father through Christ and in the Spirit, it is also the case that we call upon the name of Jesus. And we need to say both of those things. The emphasis of Scripture is that we call upon the Father through Christ, in the name of Christ. But the Scriptures do speak of us calling upon Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. But of course, when Jesus taught us to pray, what did he say? Matthew 6, verse 9, pray like this, our Father who is in heaven. So even the teaching of Jesus is that we pray to the Father through Christ. Letter B, worship. 
The oneness of God means that Father, Son, and Spirit are equally and fully worthy of worship. We worship Christ, and here I'm quoting the opening of the Belgian Confession, according to His divine nature. He is not a God. He is God. The fullness of God. Philippians 2, 10 and 11, So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice the affirmation of the worship of Jesus. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But then also notice, because of the oneness of God, to the glory of God the Father. It is God, the one God, being glorified in the worship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is all part of that strangeness, all part of that beauty to how the New Testament speaks of these things, locating the divinity of Christ, which was undeniable because of the resurrection, within the oneness of the God of Israel. And then finally, this worship of Christ is an all-of-life sort of thing. I'm not going to give you the blank yet. The language of the Belgian Confession here is serve. And in one sense, invoke, worship, and serve are all basically the same idea. They overlap. But the word serve echoes, for example, Colossians 3, verse 24. When the Apostle Paul says, you are serving the Lord Christ. And when he says, you are serving the Lord Christ, he is speaking to the household bond servant. The one who in Rome was doing the most ordinary tasks possible. The one who in Rome, whose work was most looked down upon, who was most thought of as being insignificant. And he says to that one, he says, you are serving the Lord Christ. Christ is the one God of Israel. He is the one through whom all things were made. He is the one who was present at creation, for he never had a beginning, eternally begotten of the Father. And so all the good things of the creation were called into existence through him. And so the serving of Christ is not some spiritual overlay on top of life. It is not a spiritual compartment of life. It is rather all of life being directed toward him. Because he simply is the one God of Israel. And so to serve Christ does not simply mean a spiritual part of life. It means that Paul can say to the household bondservant, you are serving the Lord Christ. And you are doing so in all of the ordinary things God has given you to do. What I want to suggest here is that the broadness of the language of the Belgic Confession is including precisely that broadness. All of life service to God is all of life service to Christ. Letter C. In all of life, in every area of life, we have the calling and joy of serving Christ in the Spirit to the glory of God the Father. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your faithfulness in the great work of redemption you have accomplished in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. We pray that you would strengthen, encourage, embolden our faith in these things so that we might, in all the ordinary things of life, serve you faithfully. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.